Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Russia has returned to regular bombardment of Kyiv. I was like peacefully asleep and then... That was the most intense explosions I have ever experienced in Kyiv. It was really scary and it was heavy. But when you realize that this is anti-missile system working, that gives you the confidence that these missiles will won't hit their targets on the ground. Ukraine claims it shot down supposedly unstoppable missiles and that it's making meaningful progress in the war's longest battle for Bakhmut. 15 months in, is this the start of phase 2.0 in this war? In Ukraine, we can just uh, wait and believe in our armed forces, that's all. As well as the view from Ukraine, Professor Michael Clark will help us assess what's coming next. President Zelensky always said his big counteroffensive had to wait until more weapons were delivered. Do new promises from Britain and other allies make this that tipping point? And a very public war of words between the Kremlin and the boss of the huge private army which is holding Bakhmut. We explain what's really driving the Wagner Group and its leader. The closer the embrace of Putinism, the greater the guarantee for Prigozhin that he has a place in the world. There are some who have an axe to grind and would like to see him six feet under. Mike, hello. Uh, we're talking again about a possible counterattack, but what does that actually mean? Because Ukraine has been fighting back nonstop since last February. Yes. I mean, attacks and counterattacks are really a matter of scale. And of course, there's no surprise about this. We all know the Ukrainians are going to do it. They've got this offensive ready and there will be Russian counterattacks against that offensive. But it's a bit like if you think back to the Second Front, the famous D-Day landings of 1944, everyone knew that they were going to happen. But nobody knew exactly when and exactly where. And the planners for D-Day, and I suspect the Ukrainians might be a bit similar in this respect, the planners for D-Day, they were pretty sure that the invasion would succeed in the first few days, but they knew that the counterattacks would begin around D plus five or D plus six, and they were exactly right about that as well. They knew that they could knock the Germans off balance for a while, and then the counterattacks would come. And so it's a cat, it's a cat and mouse game. And I think that we're in the we're in the final phases now of the Ukrainian planning stage, where this cat and mouse game, trying to actually get the Russians to commit themselves early to their counterattacks, so the Ukrainians can see what they've got, see what they're doing, and then try to do something different. Well, also with us this week, Simon Newton, who is Forces News's resident expert on all things Ukraine. Simon, President Zelensky was on a whistle-stop tour over the weekend, Rome, Paris, Berlin, London. He had a long shopping list with him. How much did he tick off? Well, I think there were some ticks, Kate, and also some crosses, I suppose. There was ticks for armour. He got some German Leopard 1s and some infantry fighting vehicles, some French some French armour too. There was ticks for artillery. Germany's now going to give the Ukraine more howitzers. He also got drones and some more air defence capabilities. The big ticket item, of course, that he's not got is, is the Western Jets, the F-16s. That's still proving elusive. So he ticked off a lot, but not everything. Well, we'll dig into the detail of that shortly and look at how the fighting is likely to go from here. Before that, though, we should hear from Ukraine itself and get a sense of how it all feels and looks there. My name is Irina Sisak. I am a journalist of uh, Ukrainian Bureau of Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe in Kyiv. And uh, I can watch all the events uh, which are going here in Ukraine. And today I want uh, to share them with you. Irina, 
great to speak to you. Thank you for your time. How are things there with you right now? Uh, everything is okay. This night uh, was uh, very calm, but uh, for example, the last one night was uh, very scary because since the beginning of May, the Russian Federation, after a pause, uh, yes, has significantly increased its shelling of Ukrainian territory. And uh, on the night of May 16, Russian army made its eight attack on Ukraine, on Kyiv in particular, uh, since the beginning of months. Uh, in other words, it actually happens every other day. It was very loud that night uh, and the number of explosion, uh, oh, I don't know. It seems to me that they were at least uh, 15, if not more. And Irina, um, the reports go that 18 missiles were shot down on that night. The attack described as exceptionally dense. But here in the UK, we get occasional headlines. You're living through this every day. Um, you say it was a very frightening night. Can you just describe a bit more about what it was like? Sure. Uh, first, we hear a siren. Yes, it means that we have uh, to go to the shelter or just to, to use the rule of two walls, yes, to, to be safe. I went to the corridor and uh, spent half a night trying to sleep because it was very loud, uh, so many explosions. But in the morning, uh, the result of our defense work was incredible because all 18 missiles and uh, nine drones that flew to Ukraine were shot down. So uh, Ukrainians are very grateful to our defense forces and uh, also to our partners who provided Ukraine with this modern air defense system because this is uh, actually saves tens if not hundreds of uh, people's lives. And how does that night compare with three months ago or even the same time last year? You know, uh, last year it was very terrible because we didn't know whether the Air Force can defend us. But uh, frankly speaking, uh, now we are more sure. It's strange feeling, you know, on one side uh, it's scary because uh, explosions, uh, you can't uh, get used to them completely. But uh, on the other side, you believe in air defense forces and uh, you feel safe and uh, calm. And a week ago, there was another major bombardment of Kyiv from Shahed drones. Does it feel from Kyiv like the war is entering a new phase to you? Frankly speaking, I don't know, but uh, I see the tendency that uh, from the beginning of May they started this uh, shelling with uh, high intensity and uh, we will uh, watch how it uh, will continue, yes. I don't know. I don't know what are they thinking about and uh, what uh, are their plans. And we've been hearing for many months now that a Ukrainian counteroffensive is on the way. Do you have any greater sense there than we do here of when that big push will be seen? Oh, well, <laughs> the topic of counteroffensive has been constantly discussed in the media recently. And uh, we know that the Ukrainian army has already made uh, some progress in direction of Bakhmut. Radio uh, Liberty, yes, our journalists are filming on the front lines and uh, as our president said uh, ukraine will be ready to launch this uh, counter offensive after the 
completion of arms delivers and favorable weather conditions. So in Ukraine, we can just uh, wait and believe in our armed forces. That's all. You and your fellow Ukrainians have been living with this war for more than a year now. Are you or others still able to feel resolute, to hold optimism? Yes, sure. We are very optimistic. We believe in our armed forces. We encourage them. We don't forget to donate money. For example, my friends organize for buying some equipment for their relatives, for example. And uh, we are very optimistic, even without big uh, success, yes, uh, on the front line. We know uh, that the war will end uh, with our victory. And Irina, how are you? Because you're not like a war correspondent who goes to another country, reports on it and goes home. You do this every day and you also live through the fear of being a Ukrainian citizen and having to deal with that as well. Yes, we as a journalist, it's very important for us to tell the truth about uh, our uh, the war uh, which is going on in our country to ask for help, uh, to ask other countries to give us some more weapon. I see uh, a big importance of uh, my work, especially informing people abroad. It's really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time, Irina. Thank you so much for interest in uh, the situation in Ukraine. Irina was talking to us from Kyiv on Wednesday afternoon. So the view in Ukraine's capital is that the Ukrainian counterattack is just waiting on Western weapons and the weather. Simon, I want to talk through the weapons situation with you in a moment. Western officials say Ukraine's army is at an increased state of readiness for a counteroffensive. Mike, I talked earlier about the possibility of being on the edge of phase 2.0 in this war. Does it look like that tipping point to you? Yes, it does. And the Russians are responding in the same way because, as Arena was saying, I mean, the Russians have begun this, what is now the 16th round of air attacks on Kyiv and on other cities. And this round has involved nine waves in two and a half weeks. So she said every other day there's a big wave of attacks. And if you look at what they're using, they're throwing everything into these attacks, not doing them a lot of good, but they're throwing, you know, drones, the Iranian drones, their own cruise missiles, the KH-55s and KH-35s. They've put the Kinzel missile in, the Dagger missile, the hypersonic missiles that they thought were impossible to defend against. And they haven't been very successful. So the fact that the Russians are throwing everything that they've got into these air attacks and not succeeding, and they're doing it day, literally on a 48-hour cycle that began on the 1st of May, tells you quite a lot about what the Kremlin's expectations are for what is going to happen next. So, Simon, in your assessment, how close is President Zelensky to having the weapons he needs for a counterattack? Uh, well, I think I think only he really knows that. I mean, they've. If you ask them, I guess they'd say they they can never have enough ammunition, enough tanks, enough troops. They have had thirty billion dollars of military aid since December, so that's you know that's more than the annual defence budget of many NATO countries. And and this tour is going to give them more kit. They're getting thirty Leopard ones, some Marder infantry vehicles, twenty of those from the Germans, and some air defence systems like the RST, which they badly need. The French are promising them some armour, some light combat vehicles. And the UK, we're sending them these mysterious attack drones, which no one seems to be very sure about what they're actually going to be. So there's stuff being pledged. It still hasn't got there. So they are still waiting for that. And the Western officials we've been hearing from say two things are going to be really crucial, air superiority and precision strike. And that's where this storm shadow delivery from Britain is really critical to this question. If you remember HIMARS last summer, 
a really big game changer, a big deal. And with Storm Shadow, they're getting a long-range weapon that can pretty much hit anything they want. You know, they can hit Russian logistics hubs and rear areas. They can hit the Crimea, the Kerch Bridge, if they want to. They can even hit, um, say, S-300 air defence systems. So it's giving them a huge range of options. In terms of tanks, they're supposed to be getting 140 Leopards and Challengers, we understand. We don't think they're all there yet, but we hear about 95% of them are, so they're getting very close. Some analysts are saying they need hundreds more tanks, hundreds more infantry fighting vehicles. Well, that doesn't seem to be on the cards. They're going to have to go with what they've got at some certain point. So does he have what he needs? Probably not all of it. But the people who really only know know, the answer to that are are Ukraine's military commanders. And what's still missing from his shopping list for a counterattack to begin? Uh, Well, that's another good question because it really depends on what shape this counteroffensive takes. If they're going to to strike south from, say, Kherson across the Dnipro River, they're going to need bridging equipment, you know, for this amphibious assault. We don't know how much of that they've actually got. They want more long-range artillery. Do they have enough troops? They say they've got 12 brigades, around 60,000 men. We're being told the Russians have about 200,000 troops or so along this 1,000-kilometre border, but that's obviously, uh, front line, sorry, but that's obviously varying in quality. The thing that Western officials were saying to us this week is that Ukraine wants to have this cognitive effect on Russia. They want to have, they want this offensive to have such a jolt on the Kremlin and on Putin that he will become more risk averse. So it's not just about taking territory. It's also about really hitting Russian forces so hard that, that the shockwaves reach the Kremlin, if you like, and the wider population in Russia. Mike, the, the former Foreign Secretary William Hague has argued there's a very limited window for Ukraine to get big momentum or it becomes an endless war. How much time do you think they have? Well, you can gauge it in terms of weeks or maybe in two months or three months. I mean, any offensive will run out of steam. I mean, that's just in the nature of it. It runs its course and then you try to sustain it, but you have to dig in at some point and then assess the situation from there. And so this offensive, let's say it lasts a few weeks, um, as Simon says, it's got to actually achieve some political effect. I mean, I'm sure the Ukrainians will break through somewhere, but what will they do with that breakthrough? How big an effect will it have? And what will be the, as Simon said, the cognitive effect, not just on Russia, but on the outside world. But the time that the Ukrainians have got to have that effect, you can measure in weeks. So let's guess somewhere between, say, eight and 16 weeks, after which people would say, look, this has gone on for four months. You're not really moving forward very far. This is as good as it's going to get. And that's what the Ukrainians don't want to hear. What they want to hear after, say, six weeks or seven or eight weeks is, my goodness, this has really changed the balance of of forces in Ukraine, hasn't it? So how do you think we'll see the start of the counterattack? Will there be a big spectacular push or strategically does it make more sense for more of a subtle ramp up? I think it'll be the latter rather than the former. Um, at, at some point, we'll see the weight of the, the heavy metal. It's a bit like saying, follow the money. You know, as a defence analyst, you follow the heavy metal. Where is that mm. being deployed? Where the, where's the heavy armour and all the things that go with the heavy armour? Where is that making its biggest contribution? But the Ukrainians won't want to just start on day one, I would think, from uh, one particular position. So I think we'll see lots of decoys, uh, lots of feints, and as it were, what might look like false starts. And what we've seen around Bakhmut is maybe the first of a series of of developments and we won't be clear where this arrow that they've got they've got an arrow that they can put on the map a big ukrainian arrow that will punch through where will this arrow be placed on the map or maybe two smaller arrows we won't be clear about that until we've seen a few diversionary operations first is my guess 
Mm. And, and Simon, can we just go back to the air raids that Arena has just lived through? Russian hypersonic missiles apparently shot down by Ukraine's air defences. Russia, though, claiming it actually destroyed a Patriot missile battery with one of those hypersonics. But this sounds incredible. We've been told that no air defences could take out weapons travelling at five times the speed of sound. Mm. Well, the Russian claim that's that's about taking out the Patriot. That seems to be a little bit over-egged from the reading I'm doing. And the US, America is saying it caused some damage to one of the launches, but that it was minimal. Uh, and of course, in a in a Patriot battery, you've got eight launches, so there's there's plenty more where that came from, if you like. The other story though is really interesting. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on Twitter looking at uh, Ukraine watches and discussions of this about the Kinshal, which was obviously, as you say, touted as this run- Russia wonder weapon. A lot of very debate, uh, geeky debate on social media from people about whether the remains we saw in that video with Vitaly Klitschko, if, if you remember that, is in fact a Kinshal missile, a dagger. The US says it was, and perhaps we're finding out that the killjoy, that the, the, the dagger isn't quite what it seems, like a lot of Russian weaponry we've seen in this war. But, but the thing that's really interesting is that the Kinshal isn't actually a true hypersonic missile. It doesn't stay at Mach 5 plus for its entire flight, apparently. It's what's what the experts call a quasi-hypersonic weapon. So it's a very fast ballistic missile that's fired from high altitude and only actually only reaches those speeds for part of its trajectory. And Patriot, at least the, the latest versions, can hit incoming ballistic missiles. So on the balance of probability, it seems that Patriot did take out this Kinjar missile. It's a very effective system. But was the missile performing correctly? Was What part of the flight was it on? I don't think we're ever going to know. Simon, good to speak to you. Thanks for your time today. Um, Mike, you were talking about um, where this counteroffensive might actually start. Um, we know there's a lot happening around Bakhmut in the moment. Where should we be looking on the map, though? Yes, well, I mean, what's happening in Bakhmut is of some importance. Um, the Ukrainians are holding on to just the southwestern tip of the city. They've even, I think, now lost the northwestern tip. So they're holding on by their fingertips, but they've kept the road open, which is this, this famous, the T0504, probably the most famous road of the war so far. And as long as that road is open, then they have not technically lost Bakhmut and they can resupply their forces. So while they're holding on by their fingertips to the urban area, they've put in two attacks, one north one south threatening the russians at least potentially with an encirclement behind the city to the east and if they could encircle the russians and or at least threaten to then what happens in the city center in a way won't matter because the 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 russians or the wagner group in the city will be in some severe trouble well bakhmut is the longest battle of this all-out war but at its very heart it's not being fought by the russian army instead it's being subcontracted to the private wagner group essentially mercenaries loyalties though are looking strained earlier this month wagner's leader threatened to withdraw accusing moscow of starving it of vital ammunition the supplies seem to have returned but it's now also claimed the same leader Yevgeny Prigozhin offered up detailed location data on Russian positions in return for a Ukrainian pullback from Bakhmut. It looks a lot like a feud between Varga and Russia's Ministry of Defense so we thought it's worth taking a pause to better understand the Wagner group. Originally conceived to protect Russia's massive energy industry it has thousands of unofficial soldiers working not just in Ukraine but also Sudan, Libya, Mali, the Central African Republic and Syria. So what is the Wagner Group? How much power does it wield in Moscow? And what's it really trying to do? Candice Rondo is professor at the Center on the Future of War at Arizona State University. She visited Ukraine in the autumn to investigate Wagner. 
I think the best way to characterize the Wagner group is really more like a paramilitary cartel. We're not talking about some unitary entity that has a corporate registration in Moscow or St. Petersburg. What we're really talking about is a set of companies that essentially operate on contract with the Minister of Defense and provide military services, uh, primarily logistics originally, uh, but increasingly, of course, in the, in the Ukraine context, more combat services, human cannon fodder, basically, uh, to the front lines in Ukraine. It sounds very well established. Can you just explain to us the story of the Wagner Group and when and how it was created? As far as we can tell, based on the evidence that we've seen, somewhere around 2015, going back almost eight years now, there was a, a small force, a small unit under the control of a man named Dmitry Utkin, who had the call sign Wagner. It mm. seems that essentially that unit was assigned the task of a cleaning operation to sweep up recalcitrant members of the Russian separatist forces in Donbass who were unwilling to capitulate to a ceasefire agreement under the Minsk II agreement. And it's there that we begin to see that this small couple of platoons grows into a much larger paramilitary force that then starts to deploy out to Syria and, and then Libya and the CAR. You mentioned the name of the group coming from potentially the call sign of this person. Where did that name come from for them? It, yeah, well, listen, it's a very, it's a funny but dark story. So uh, Dmitry Yudkin apparently had a, a few obsessions. One of them was with Nazi subculture and, uh, and the Third Reich history. Uh, and as some people might know, that um, Richard Wagner, who is a great German composer, uh, was a favorite of Adolf Hitler. But also Wagner, of course, created this fantastic beautiful piece of music called the the ride of the valkyries uh, which describes these kind of warriors you know swooping down out of the air da, 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 da. everybody knows the tune but what they don't know is actually you know um, a lot of helicopter pilots in the military not just uh, the russian military but even the american military adopted that as kind of a, a call to battle famously in apocalypse now there is a scene you know of helicopter pilots playing blasting that as they pound a Vietnamese village with artillery fire from their helicopters. So that's the second piece. But then there's a third piece, which is that there was an Edvard Wagner, uh, who was the quartermaster for the Third Reich and was responsible for logistics, basically, and also uh, was responsible for a pretty serious pogrom against uh, Russian Jews at that time. So there's kind of a triple or even quadruple entendre when it comes to the Wagner Group and the name uh, itself. So accepting the Wagner Group isn't a single company. If we look at it as an umbrella, how much military power is covered by that umbrella? Mm, that is a great question. I'd say that's a $64,000 question, but I think we have mm. some hints in the presence of the VDV Airborne Assault Forces, kind of often co-located with the Wagner Group in places like Bakhmut. We saw that also in Solidar, uh, a few other places. It seems that they are in many ways co-joined at the hip uh, yeah. One cannot operate without the other. Um, that's a real possibility. I also think we're seeing a lot of co-location in the basing and training areas. Let's, you know, everybody knows now, I think, about Molkino, uh, which is not that far from Krasnator, which is where the 10th Special Purposes GRU Brigade operates. And the Wagner Group training base is not more than a couple of blocks away. Is it fair to say, though, that those working for the Wagner Group, they're ultimately always working for the Kremlin and the Kremlin is the only client? A hundred percent. The entire Wagner Group brand was created to paper over what is basically a set of active reservists, contractors 
who have special skills. Many of them are former special operators. Uh, some of them are current special operators. Some are, you know, scout reconnaissance specialists. Some people are assassins and snipers. The chain of command and who actually has the decision-making power, absolutely, it all, all goes back to the Kremlin. And you said earlier that, that they, they were in a strange position of having to ask the official military for ammunition. Is Wagner reliant on Moscow for all of its equipment or does it have other supplies as well? Well, it seems that there, there is, is certainly a mix, but that is not just unique to Wagner. Russia's conventional military has had difficulty with supplying itself uh, for many, many years. It is notoriously horrendous around logistics and supply. Um, that is, you know, a history that dates back all the way to World War One. The conventional military has also suffered from, you know, shortages of boots, shortages of uh, medical supplies. The Wagner Group is actually no different in that respect. They, but they have been much more successful, I think, at getting off-the-shelf technologies. For instance, uh, DJI uh, drones, of course, made by China, kind of almost um, toy versions of drones, but they're very useful. Mm -hmm. And of course, they have a, a number of black market and gray market purveyors that they work with uh, clearly in North Korea and China and a few other places, uh, Turkey as well. You know, that's one area of supply. And then, of course, they are extremely dependent on the Russian conventional forces and Ministry of Defense for large scale ammunition, especially. Uh, I mean, you don't just sort of trundle howitzers and, and other types of large scale artillery out into the field all by yourself and then <laughs> carry the the missiles, uh, you know, across uh, by hand or by by donkey cart. That is a large scale military enterprise that requires serious state resources. And what about in Russia itself? How much power does the Wagner Group wield in governing the country? Well, <laughs> you know, look, there have always been extreme far right forces within Russia's military and security services, and they have made themselves known oftentimes through bloody and violent conflict and seizures of power. That, I believe, is sort of one slice that we're seeing represented in the Wagner Group that has growing influence, unfortunately. As this war grinds on, the fractionalization, you know, which I think has been very much on display with Yevgeny Prigozhin calling out Sergei Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, uh, Valery Gerasimov also uh, being criticized very openly, I think the longer this goes on, the more we can expect to see fractionalization uh, within the forces, and, and that will start to come to play in the politics, which I think we're beginning to see as well. And what motivates Wagner's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin? Is he simply in it for the money, or is it about him having power, maybe in or maybe over the Kremlin? Well, at the risk of sounding overly empathetic to a man who clearly uh, is on the path to the ICC in The Hague, I will mm. say... This is a man who fell, fell on hard times, broke bad, as we would say here in America, and ended up hanging out with a lot of thugs and spent uh, almost a decade in jail for his crimes, violent crimes. It, during that time, he transformed himself on some level. Um, you know, he became a reader, a writer, a thinker. And I think the story that he tells himself is, Putin's Russia helped me transform myself. It made me a very rich man, <laughs> and there's no reason to rock the boat, so to speak. Uh, and in fact, the, the closer the embrace of Putinism, uh, the greater the guarantee for, for, for Prigozhin that he has a place in the world. There are some who are, have an axe to grind and would like to see him six feet under. 
assassination is a real risk for him. And so, yes, there's a there's a money concern, but there's also kind of a, a political capital concern uh, for him that really motivates a lot of his actions. Professor Candice Rondo, uh, Mike, it's perhaps easy to be distracted by the story of Wagner. Is it a sideshow or does it matter at what could prove a crucial moment? Yeah, I think it does matter, actually, for the reasons that uh, Candice was, was mentioning. That, um, I mean, Wagner, until this war, did operate as a sort of a, a, a facilitator of militias. It was a it was a facilitation organization, very brutal, very illegal. And its business model was that we'll do anything you need to have done. We'll work with any dictators for a share in the mineral wealth of that country. But come this war, what Wagner's tried to do is to expand from about you know five thousand, maybe seven thousand specialists and reservists and ex special forces people up to a, a mass group of about fifty thousand with their own backup, quite a lot of their own materials, some of their own artillery, some of their own air power, and they've tried to operate as a conventional military arm, and it's failed. They are useless except in the business of moving over, as it were, cities that have been reduced to rubble and doing the killing. This is why it is important, as Candice was saying, is that what's happening now is the fractionalization of the Russian forces. And you look at what's happening in Bakhmut, you've got four or five different elements of Russian forces, none of whom are working together, all of whom are competing for influence and for material and for glory. And it is a, a recipe for not necessarily disaster, but it's certainly a recipe for suboptimal performance, to put it mildly. Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time. Look forward to speaking to you again next week. And my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. 